I want to read you some of the most heart-rending lines in Scripture. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their own womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering them without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on my side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy has destroyed. What a profound expression of grief. What a tragic loss. What's going on here? What is the situation? The book of Lamentations opens with a cry of loneliness. Those words, by the way, are from Lamentations 2. But look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was as a princess among the provinces has become a slave. A city once full of people is now empty, like a desolate widow whose husband has been whisked away by death, or like a princess who is taken in battle and is now a slave. This city's fortunes have been dramatically reversed. What city is this? Look at verse 7. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. Look at verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. This is Jerusalem. Her people have fallen into the hand of the enemy and there was none to help her in that day. None? Is this not the city of the great King David? Is this not the city of the temple of Solomon where God's presence dwells? Does not God's glory dwell here? Surely this city of all cities has not fallen, has it? And yet it has. Where was God in that moment? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Look at verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its stronghold. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. In verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you. And, exalt, and, has, and has exalted the might of your foes. What terrifying words those must have been to Israel. 
the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. That is why Israel lies in desolation. What has happened to Israel is exactly what God had said would happen. Israel has fallen. Why would God do this to his people? And how did Israel get here to these ruins? To get an answer to this, we need to go back to Genesis 1. Let's look in Genesis 1. Beginning this morning, uh, 10 messages around a title of Life in the Spirit. And a subtitle would be The Normal Christian Life. What does it mean to live as a Christian? What has happened to Israel? In Genesis 1, God created a world of beauty and order. We noticed that this morning. Verse 31, when God finished, it was all very good. He filled the world with animal life. The skies were full of birds and the seas teemed with fish. The land was covered with crawling insects, galloping horses and grazing cattle. God's world was filled with life. And his crowning achievement was the creation of mankind. God breathed into man his own breath of life, and man became a living soul. In the beginning, mankind belonged to God, existing in perfect union with God and enjoying God's richest blessings. God placed the man and the woman in a land, the Garden of Eden. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with their offspring. Mankind living in a land, multiplying offspring or seed and enjoying God's blessing. A land, a seed and a blessing. This was paradise. But it didn't last. Mankind sinned and for his sin he was driven out of the land, out of Eden. Mankind began to die. His fruitfulness and his reproduction, the multiplication of his offspring, was now cut short by death. No longer does his reproduction fill the earth with the image and knowledge of the Lord. Now human reproduction only fills the earth with violence and corruption. And God placed a curse upon mankind. Because of sin, man lost the land. He lost the ability to produce a seed. And the blessing he enjoyed in God's presence was replaced with a curse. And throughout the opening chapters of Genesis, man's sin begins to grow by degrees until we get to chapter 6 when the reproduction of man has filled the earth with violence and wickedness. And in his wrath, God pours out upon the earth a great flood of waters and he wipes the earth clean of sinners. And when Noah emerges from the ark, it is a new world. And God intended that it be a new beginning. Just as to Adam, God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And yet Noah soon corrupts himself in his vineyard, doesn't he? Getting drunk. The flood of God's, great, God's wrath has not reversed the true source of the problem. The world still lies under God's curse. Not long after Noah emerged from the ark, his sons begin to reproduce, and just as before, sin begins to multiply on the earth again. 
and just as before, death reigns upon the earth. The flood has not reversed the curse. But Noah's son Shem fathers Eber, and Eber fathers Terah, and Terah fathers Abram. And in Genesis 12:1, God appears to Abram and he says, Go forth from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes three promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. He promises him a land. He promises him a seed, a great nation. And he promises him a blessing. The promises God makes to Abraham are a direct reversal of the curse that God cast upon mankind because of his sin in the garden. And to top it all off, God promises that he's going to undo, the, undo Sarah's barrenness. Adam and Eve were to multiply and fill the earth, but sin has brought death that has corrupted that process. But God would open Sarah's womb. It would be a dramatic demonstration that it was he who was reversing the curse. He was doing what only God could do. The promised seed of Abraham would come by divine intervention alone. God would reverse the curse and bring blessing to mankind again. But this reversal would not be for Abraham and his family alone. God says that through Abram's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham would be a conduit, a channel, through which God's blessings would flow to all of the nations that lay under God's curse. The primary result of the curse was death. The primary blessing God would pour out upon mankind through Abram would be life. It would be a return to the life of Eden. And so God incubates Abraham's family in Egypt for 430 years, and then he delivers them by his great power, smashing Egypt's God in a triumphant display of ten plagues and destroying Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And he gives Israel his law, and he settles them in a land. Why? Why does God do that? Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you. Go back and survey world history, God says. Since the day that God created man upon the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other. Whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of before. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and that there is none other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, and chose their offspring after them, 
and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Just as it was with Noah, who came through the waters, now Israel too has come through the waters of the Red Sea. And just as with Noah, so too with Israel. It was a new beginning. It was an entrance into a new land. God has turned the clock back. Just as he had done with Adam and Eve, God creates a people, the people of Israel. He calls Israel into existence and he settles them in a land just as he had with Adam and Eve. And just as with Adam, God gives them laws to govern their conduct in that land. God urges Israel to keep his statutes and commandments that it may go well with her and that she may prolong her days in the land that God has given her. And behind this admonition is God's own remembrance of Adam, who cut short his days in the land because of his sin. Adam had not kept God's statutes and commandments and had cut short his days in the land that God gave him and brought upon himself a curse. He was driven out and his life was taken from him. Israel could enjoy life in the land if they would obey. It would go well with them if they obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And God makes that choice explicit for them in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. And we'll be in those three chapters for the remainder of our time this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The name of this book, Deuteronomy, means second giving of the law. It's the second time that God gave his law. He had given it once to the parents of these Israelites who received the book of Deuteronomy, but the parents had perished in the wilderness for their rebellion against God. And once again, we see that rebellion means that one cannot enjoy God's blessing and life in the land he's promised. They did not inherit the land because they did not believe and obey. And so they fell in the wilderness. But God has given his laws a second time to a second generation and he has positioned them well for success. Chapter 27 brings to a close this second giving of God's laws. And it ends at the end of chapter 27. Moses and the priests urge Israel to keep the law of God. God instructs Moses to reinforce this admonition with 12 curses that will come upon Israel if they disobey the law of God. It's the same pattern we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And in chapter 28, God pivots then to specify blessings that will come upon Israel if they obey his law. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, in contrast to chapter 27, you disobey 12 curses. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city 
and blessed shall you be in the field. So they're going to have cities and fields. They're going to have a land. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. That's what Adam was supposed to do. Multiply offspring and God says, I'll bless you to do it. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Here we find that God promises to bless Israel if they will obey him. He mentions that they will live in a land, that he will bless them in the city and the fields of that land. He mentions that the fruit of their womb will be blessed. They will multiply. In other words, they will fill the land just as God had said Adam was supposed to do in Eden. Each of these three blessings, land and seed and a blessing that God promises to Israel are a direct reversal of the curse he cast upon Adam and Eve. If Israel would only obey. If she would, it would be paradise in the land of promise. It would be Eden again. Adam had brought sin and death into the world. But if Israel chose to obey, she would enjoy the blessing of life in the land of God's promise. And God reinforces these blessings with a list of curses in the remainder of chapter 28, the beginning of verse 15. These curses sound a lot like the curse that God cast upon the earth when Adam sinned. We won't read through them, but it involves being driven out of the land. It involves the wombs of Israel's women and livestock no longer being fruitful and multiplying. And finally, just as for Adam, God's curse would result in death for Israel. God says, your nation will be dissolved. It will cease to be upon the earth. And in chapter 29 and the beginning of chapter 30, then Moses calls Israel to enter into covenant with the Lord. He concludes with a final call to them in verse 15 of chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 verse 15. He concludes with a final call to Israel to make the choice of life. See, I have said before you today, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob to give them. God sets before Israel a clear choice. Life. Choose life, Israel. If Israel does obey, it will mean life and multiplication and blessing in the land. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Eden, just like Genesis 1. So Israel, obey the commandments. Choose life, God says. It all lies in the power of your hands. 
God makes this point explicit in verse 11 of chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 11. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God's law is accessible. It is known to Israel. The word is near them. God has put it right into their hands so that they will do it. And God has not spared any provision to put Israel into a place where choosing life is more accessible and possible for them. The words of the law, he says, are not too hard for them. God has not asked the impossible. He has not asked them to move mountains or to fly to the moon, just to honor parents and refrain from idolatry. So God asks Israel, oh sorry, God, so God asks of Israel a law that lies within the ability of ordinary human strength to accomplish. It doesn't require superhuman strength to achieve. And God prepares leaders to guide the people to do the law. God instructs Moses to commission Joshua at the end of chapter 31 to lead the people to do all of these things. Deuteronomy is a stunning book to me because every time I read it, I am amazed at how much God has done to prepare Israel for success. Surely if any nation had the opportunity to choose life and obtain God's blessing in exchange for obedience, it was Israel. And yet the book of Deuteronomy closes in chapter 31, verse 16, with these words. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. What a pessimistic note to end on. Why does God say the scheme will not work? Why end here? After all the provisions for success, why say, Moses, you're going to die? And the people are going to forsake the covenant. Let me show you a succession, succession of verses in Deuteronomy that will show you why this scheme could never have worked. Turn back to chapter 6. From the very inception, the beginning of the nation of Israel, what we saw in Lamentations this morning was already foretold. Why? Deuteronomy gives us several summations of the law, and they all point to one thing that it would mean for Israel to keep the laws of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates and so on. Excessive attention to God's words. Why? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart so that his words pervade all of your life. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding this day to you for your good. Deuteronomy 11, 11, 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Why would the scheme not work? Because obedience was a matter of the heart. Obedience must flow from a heart of unreserved love for God. To love the Lord your God with all the heart and all the soul is what it meant to keep the commandments of the Lord your God. This is why God concludes that second giving of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 with these words. Oh, that they had such an heart as this always, to fear me and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them or with their descendants forever. The problem was the heart. What was the state of Israel's heart? Deuteronomy 29 verse 2, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord God did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and these great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And so, in the next chapter, God issues this call to Israel. Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, in chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. This was Israel's great need, to circumcise their hearts. If it all went wrong, if the train ran off the tracks, the root of the problem could be traced back to their hearts. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. The bitter root of unbelief begins in the heart. It is the turning away of the heart from the Lord. 
It is the seeking after other gods. It is the failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. That is the root from which springs up the fruits of lawlessness. And so the result for Israel, Deuteronomy 29 verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive you. But rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Let's step back for just a minute and try to put all this together. Just about to our conclusion here. Deuteronomy teaches us without any question that righteousness leads to life. Do you want the blessing of God? Do you want life? Then obey. Be righteous. How blessed are all those who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119 verse 1. Adam disobeyed. And look where he ended up. So Israel, obey. Choose life. Is God simply setting an empty possibility before them? Choose life, Israel. Or won't be able to, but choose life. No, righteousness does actually lead to life and the fullness of life. There is no other possibility. Righteousness leads to God's blessing. Unrighteousness leads to God's curse. There are no other options. Twice in Isaiah, God diagnoses why Israel's situation is so desperate. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Isaiah 48.22 and 57.21. Now you perhaps know that the word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. We think of peace as, well, there's no hostility, you know, we're, we're friends. But that's not exactly what the word peace in the Hebrew Bible means. Everyone gets along and that's the way that we think of peace. But when a Hebrew man greets another Hebrew man, he clasps his hands together in a sign of prayer. And he says, shalom, brother. What is he saying? He's not saying, I, I hope you're not angry at me and I hope we can have a nice friendship together. Instead, he's saying, I pray to the Lord for you, brother, that he may grant you his peace and well-being. Shalom refers to well-being in every way. It means blessing and happiness and well-being and goodness and life. There is none of that for the wicked, God says. No peace for the wicked. If you want shalom, you must do right. There is no other way. You must obey. If you want life, you must obey the commandments of God. God gave Israel his law and he called her to obey and to choose life. Now, there are three things this morning that we need to pick up from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy and the nation of Israel are in the, book of, are in the Bible to teach us three things. The first is this. Righteousness leads to life and blessing and peace. In fact, it's the only way to righteousness and bless, to life and blessing and peace. Is this not what the New Testament teaches us? The wages of sin is death? Listen to Psalm 1. The blessed man is the one who walks in the law of the Lord and meditates in it day and night. Listen to Matthew 7. The one who hears my words and does them is like the man who builds his house on the rock. And it doesn't topple when the rains come. Listen to James 1.27. The man who looks into the perfect law of liberty and does what it says will be blessed in his deed. 
Righteousness leads to life and blessing and peace. Unrighteousness leads to a curse and death. This much we find in the book of Deuteronomy. The second thing we learn from Deuteronomy is that Deuteronomy and the entire history of the nation of Israel teaches us that God's law plus human effort does not produce righteousness. How can a man be righteous before God? If you give him God's law, put it right in his hands, give him a leader to help him do it, have him write it on pillows to remind him to do it, threaten him with curses if he doesn't, give him blessings if he does, will you achieve any measure of success? Will he take any steps forward in actual obedience to God? And the answer is no. Israel was God's 900-year experiment concerning the ability of the human will to produce righteousness. And Israel proved a colossal failure despite every effort God made to ensure success. God's law plus your ability has never produced a single gram of righteousness in your life. So where does human righteousness come from? What is its decisive cause? I just want to stop and underscore that second point one more time. God actually says to Israel, even your righteous deeds are like filthy garments in my sight. What's the best thing you've done this past week? The thing you're sure God must have smiled when you did it. Filthy garments in God's sight. You're going to hand that up to him and expect that he'll return life and blessing to you? You cannot produce the righteousness you need. It is impossible. And that's the third thing that Deuteronomy in Israel's history teaches us. It tells us what the decisive cause of all human righteousness is. Where does it come from? Where does righteousness for justification come from? Where does righteousness for sanctification come from? The decisive cause of human righteousness is not the powers of human free will. Our will is bound in sin. Paul tells us the natural man cannot obey the law of God. It is impossible, Romans 8, 8, and 8, Romans 8 7 and 8. Since the fall of man, apart from the life of Jesus of Nazareth, the sheer force of human will has never produced a single gram of human righteousness in the sight of God that he has received. Even Israel's righteous deeds were like filthy garments, God says. And so the law plus human willpower does not lead to righteousness. The decisive cause of all human righteousness is not you. It is God and God alone. Where does life come from? Where does blessing come from? The answer to that is by righteousness. Where does righteousness come from? From God alone. The decisive cause of all human righteousness is the work of God. God is the one who produces in us the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. Start to finish, human righteousness is God's work 
in us. And this is what Deuteronomy teaches us. Listen to Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not yet given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. But if he did, would your eyes hear? Would your eyes see? Would your ears hear? What we need is God. God says the word is near you, in your hearts. But that's not enough. Scripture memorization is not enough. Reading your Bible is not enough. Knowing the Ten Commandments is not enough. Trying harder is not enough. It will not produce even a gram of righteousness in the sight of God. Instead, we need God to circumcise our hearts. We need God to give us a heart to understand, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We need God to come down to dwell within us, to produce from inside of us the righteousness that we need, to cause us to walk in His ways. How will that ever be possible? God in me, causing me to walk in His ways. That's the promise of the new covenant. And that is what we will turn our attention to next week.